morning. Uh, as Chad said, we're into the good stuff. And it's true. Um, my goal is to finish the first seven verses today. And I think we have a shot at it. <laughs> if not, we're never going to make it. So we're going to do it. And then on Tuesday, like I mentioned, like we kind of decided last time, either SPP 6 or 7. If that, if, I don't know, I'm always fuzzy on the numbers, but you know what I'm talking about, right? Either of those SPPs are due on Tuesday. Everyone with me on that? And you upload to which SPP? Number 7. Otherwise, I won't read it, and you'll get a zero, and you'll be sad. And I will say, don't tell me I didn't warn you. And if you understand Minor Prophets, you understand where I'm coming from on that one. So, yeah, she got it. Roger here is so busy studying his Hebrew, he didn't pick up the illusion. Didn't get the echo. The <laughs> and he's still thinking about the nifal or something. So, um, there, you would not expect in the first seven verses there to be anything important. In fact, you would expect that from verse 8 and on is where all the important stuff happens. But the first seven verses really provide a lot of the backdrop, and I'll explain more on what I mean by this, that gives you some insight into what is occurring. Yes, sir? Um, I just have a quick question. Please ask. Of chapter. Okay, uh huh. Yeah. Couple, th- you know, I really did rush through that at the end. So um, it's good that you asked that. Michal, she despises what David's doing. And she thinks that David has acted below his kingly dignity. Now, this actually goes back, and after I explain this, we'll pray, and, and then, okay, so don't, don't panic, okay? Um, but she has, she has assumed that David has acted below his kingly dignity. Why was her father chosen to be king to begin with? Because of his, yeah, his stature, his external appearance. Everyone with me on this? So to her, to be a king, you have to what? Look like a king. It's all about the looks. David has, was dancing and things of this nature with a linen ephod. Everyone remember that? The reason that the text mentions it is twofold. One of the things I told you, one of the things I didn't, because it's implied, and normally everyone would have gotten it. But the first thing you know is that he's acting really a lot like a priest. He's not a priest, but he looks like a priest. But along with that, at the end of the Ten Commandments, isn't this funny? It's like you only think Exodus 20 is Ten Commandments, but there's actually stuff that follows the Ten Commandments. It says a priest should always wear a linen ephod so that they don't expose themselves while walking around up to the altar and therefore disgrace themselves. So Michal's is exaggerating. She said, David, you've exposed yourself to the people. In other words, it's indecent exposure. That's what she's arguing he's done. She is exaggerating his disgrace. She's making it now from just something embarrassing, so to speak, below the supposed dignity of a king to something that's actually sinful. That's actually something uh, worthy of death before the Lord. Does that make sense? But we already know because the type of clothing, the priestly clothing that David's wearing, 
that allegation is impossible because the clothing was designed to exactly prevent what she's accusing David of. Does this make sense to everybody? And so she's exaggerating, but her point is to shame David because if she can shame David, then, then David can't be what? King anymore. Does that make sense? If you put enough shame on this guy, he's disqualified. Uh, by the way, if you don't believe that embarrassment can cause resignation, just look at how many pastors have been taken out of ministry. Even if they don't even believe like scriptural values on integrity and all these things, just because of the media publicity that they've gotten, negative media press. Do you know what I'm talking about? All these big millionaire pastors, they caught, they're caught in a sexual scandal, they're gone. It doesn't, and they're not resigning, I don't think, because, well, you know, I really offended God with my moral actions. If that, if that was their concern, then why did they preach what they preached? Do you know what I mean? They're embarrassed because the media has focused so much negative attention, they can't recover. Uh, even in the modern, or even in the recent days, I think the guy, gentleman's name is Eddie Long. Have you guys heard about him on, read CNN, his name's all over. Um, I don't know whether he's guilty or not. You know, and we just have to wait and see. He could be totally innocent of the allegations against him. But what a lot of church gurus, Harvard religious professors, all these kinds of things are saying is, it's going to be very hard for him to recover his popularity. Because when you hit a big scandal like that, you're gone. And what Michal was trying to do was put David in a huge scandal. Exaggerate what he had done and knock him out. And instead, because David is submitting to the capital K-I-N-G and his actions were pure and rightly motivated, God uses that situation and turns it right around back at her. You will not have children. The line of Saul is now officially cut off. And David starts a new a really new dynasty. Does that answer the question? Yeah, um, and also in verse 20, 23, uh-huh. you just mentioned where she, so she had no children. Obviously that was the Lord, but do you think David knew, um, you know, I need to cut off one of Saul and start a new line, or do you think he was just, <coughs> just because of this and said, no Both and. Big picture, David knows I'm not in the line of Saul. This isn't Saul's house. This isn't Saul's dynasty. Uh, otherwise, otherwise, think of it this way. Whose covenant should it be called? Davidic covenant? No, it should be called what? The Saulite covenant. Oh yeah, why, why regain her back? <laughs> because it does two things in the original context. First, with Abner, it proves that he's loyal to David. It's a test of whether Abner is truly loyal to David and is willing to hand over the entire key to the Benjaminite tribe back to David. She's the key. If, if she's handed over to David, there is no excuse for Benjamin not to side with David. He is their rightful king by law. Second, it also shows Abner's ability and in his control over the tribe. Um, is Ishbosheth stronger? If he is, then he's going to fight and resist sending Michal back to David. Does that make sense? But if Abner's stronger, he's going to be able to force the issue and get her to David, which is exactly what happens. And so it gets complicated because David, in order to prove for national unification, 
just like Abner, right? Michal is kind of like Abner in this way. For the sake of national unification, Michal and Abner are pawns in God's plan to unify the nation politically. But the problem is, you can't keep them there. What Joab said about Abner was true, remember? He could become what? A spy and your worst nightmare and split the kingdom. You can't serve two masters. So Abner's got to die. Well, for the same reasons, Michal also has to go. David's dynasty, even though by right and by legal charter, it is the dynasty over all Israel because he married into the family, it still must be a distinctive dynasty. And he knows that has to happen. But God hands it to him. You know, it's like, did David plan to dance so that Michal would get really mad because she doesn't she knows David, don't dance, you know, stop dancing. I hate when you dance. You know, it's and then and then so that he could do this and look justified to her. No. God just hands it to him on a silver platter, so to speak. Does that make sense to everybody? And do you also see why this leads perfectly into the Davidic covenant? Because David has the kingdom, he acts like the king now, he has the full military, he's kind of given everyone a taste of what it means to be the military man who provides hope. Remember that discussion last time? And he's also now what? Totally, he knows who the real king is. He's reminded of that in stark terms in chapter 6. And then on top of that, now he really does have his own dynasty. He's cut the ties to the past. He's now starting off in the future, or in the present, moving toward the future. And that's where we get into 2 Samuel 7. Does this make sense? Good. Uh Uh-huh. What does verse 22 mean? Um, You know, I would be made more lowly. Is that the idea? David is saying, this is, a, this is really important, actually. Everything's really important. Did date, the question that we have to ask ourselves are, are, in this section are really two questions. One is, and this is actually the secondary question that I've been trying to force a little bit, which is, God makes David the king. And so he cuts the ties of the past, and that's the Michal interaction. But the big question you have to ask is, did David learn his lesson? Lowercase k-i-n-g versus capital k-i-n-g. Did he learn his lesson? The answer is yes. David's point, which is so powerful when we deal with the lordship of Christ and the lordship of God, is I would be happy to suffer more shame and more embarrassment if that's what God demanded. Because I'm not the king. Michal says, you're not acting like the king. And David says, you're right, I'm not. He is. And then he got the connection. Does that make sense to everybody? For you to understand, or for a Davidic king to work, we said fundamentally he must be the what? Right person. That's all that it hinges on. It's him as the right person. That's core to Davidic theology, I guess you could say. It's the king. It's the person. Well, what does that person have to be? A person who recognizes God as the true king and him just as a regent. And God is the one who gives commands. You are the one who's supposed to obey them. He's the king and you in reality are not. David understands. He finally gets it. And by being in this humble position, then you answer the secondary question that I posed first. He becomes most like the true king. 
Does that make sense? Um, hence, a lot of times in the New Testament, you know, not my will, but yours. All the, you know, we talk about submission to, the, to God and all this kind of stuff. And it's true. Amen. That's, that's practical. Take it home and that's important. But that's when he's most like the king. You know, that's Matthew's point. When this alignment occurs, he's most like the king. Yeah. Okay, any further? Good questions. And keep, the, keep them up. I know I just kind of like... All right, get it? Good. Go. Let's go. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, then David says it was before the Lord who chose me is that, what, is that the phrase you're questioning okay yeah oh before the well it was I, I was dancing before the Lord who chose me does that make sense of the statement in other words I'm not dancing for the girls and uh, disgrace myself I was dancing for God's glory and if I have to be humiliated to show God glory, so be it. But remember this, that Lord chose me, not your father. You're out. Right? Yeah. Can we also conclude that he had a robe on underneath? Because uh, in First Chronicles, it says that he wore a robe whenever they were carrying the ark. Yeah, yeah. The whole ephod is presumed certain priestly garments on top of it. But... Um, but the ephod that he had ensured, and this is the author's point, that no indiscretion could occur. Yeah, he probably had more clothes on than that, but there's an emphasis on that specific article of clothing for the purpose, for that okay, purpose. So yeah, did somebody try and justify dancing around their underwear because... Yeah, that's not, that's not the point. Yeah, that's not... <laughs> yeah, I could totally see, right, where this is going through, you know, where people are thinking, oh, I could be just like David. Well, one, you're not David, right? I mean, <laughs> and we're going to talk about this today. I mean, I just think it's so funny. Like, people are like, I want to be just like David. You can't be. You really can't. It's not possible. He's got a different set of problems. It's like, I want to be Superman. You can't. Fly. Try. Go and die. You know, it's just not going to happen. You know, you can't be, you can be like David in certain ways of godliness and such, but David, you, okay, when you dance before the Lord, is it like a priestly act? No. Yeah. It's just you're dancing. I mean, I mean, there's just so many disconnections that happen at this point. And yeah, do you start to see where you can go totally wrong with reading a narrative and just thinking, hey, what's in it for me? Let me be like David. I'm going to dance with, you know, just in my linen ephod or something. What? No, that has nothing to do with what the Lord wants you to take from this text. But you also see, and here's the beauty, how David so mightily and effectively sets up for who Jesus will become. Right? He is the priest. He is the one that David could never be. He could get close, he could look like, but he could never be. And then Jesus comes and he's the priest. He cleans out the temple. He is the one who offers himself as a sacrifice. And he is. And you're like, wow, that makes Christ even better. Well, that's the point. Not for you to dance in your underwear. It's for you to magnify Jesus. You know, it's like, duh. But 
You know, we just don't like to read the Bible that way. For some, I don't know. I, I know why. It's because we're selfish. But don't do that, okay? Do you see how this can lead to you all kinds of problems? You know, and now men can justify doing dumb things and cursing out their wives or something. You know, it's like no, 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 no. You don't. This is totally a different case scenario. Does that make sense to everybody? Be careful of this crazy hermeneutic that we evangelicals like to employ all the time. Okay, just be careful. All right. Any other questions? Good, good interaction. I really enjoy this. All right, let's pray. <coughs> Lord, we thank you for your word, not because of what it tells us about ourselves, but even more because of how, that inc- how all of this is incorporated for your glory and how it magnifies your son. Help us to never tire of that. Help us to always see him exalted through the correct interpretation of your word and the correct correlation of it as it moves toward in preparation for the one that you have loved more than anyone ever in this universe and beyond. And as we study the beginnings, the introductions to the Davidic covenant, help us to see these key concepts that are being placed in the setting of this diamond, of this precious jewel, the Davidic covenant. Help us to see its significance and how you are moving and once again reinforce in our mind your purposes and your plan and help us to renew our minds so that our purposes and plan are aligned with your purposes and plan. Bless this time. We so depend on you for this time to be something that honors you. And may our hearts endeavor and yearn for, not for fame, not for self-glory, not for promotion, but rather for faithfulness. So that in the end we can stand before you and say, I did honor you. I tried and I was faithful to honor the king whom you have prepared for all these years and culminated in Christ and bought us with his own blood and raised in power to sit forever on a throne according to the Davidic covenant. Lord, may that be our heart's cry. May we worship you during this time and through the study of your word now. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, <coughs> chapter 7-1. I've already covered it a little bit. The background, that is. This is all context and overview. Context and overview. But you have already seen, David has been forged by God. He has been shaped by God to be the right person, having the military and the political unification that a king demands. And this has all kind of come to a fruition with international recognition. This has come to a fruition because of how God uses David to be this conquering king who provides hope, who cleanses the land, who accomplishes his purpose. All of these things are happening, as well as the key connection between capital K-I-N-G and lowercase K-I-N-G. All of that has become clear. All of that has been forged in the past, but what has also been forged in the past is a disconnection with the past. David is no longer bound to the line of Saul. Because he's gotten rid of Michal, so to speak, in the narrative, there's a new way forward. This is not your old kingdom. This is a new kingdom. And that needs to be defined. That needs to be set in stone. And this brings us to a Davidic covenant. A Davidic covenant. Um... And what we are dealing with now 
is not the Davidic covenant in its content, but the Davidic covenant in its setting. And really, you can't just gloss over this. I was going to try, but then it, it became so clear that there are so many concepts here that are situated immediately around the Davidic covenant that to do so would actually undermine the entire enterprise of understanding the Davidic covenant. Just like, uh, I guess if you all are interested in getting married or are married, and you buy an engagement ring, the diamond is in a what? Setting. And that setting is important, not only because um, it secures the diamond so you don't lose the rock. That would be terrible. You know, like, here's your ring. Where'd the diamond go? Oh, oh no. <laughs> it looks like asphalt. You know, it's like, oh, no, what are we going to do? You know, that would be terrible. You need a good setting. But it's more important because settings are designed to amplify the diamond. Does that make sense? Settings are designed to amplify the diamond. If you understand this setting, you will understand what the Davidic covenant is purposed to do. This is the final laser point calibration of how the Davidic covenant is going to move forward. And it is absolutely important to kind of pull all of this together even more than I have done so already so that you understand where this all has to go. That's what's accomplished in this first page. Uh, the Davidic covenant defined. Uh, in order to do this really well, in order to do this really well, and what's really helpful is if you compare this with Chronicles, the book of Chronicles. Okay? And, and this goes into show and tell. See this book? It's so cool. I think it's, I think it's one of my favorite books of all time. It's still the Bible, so I guess, I guess that doesn't exactly count, but I mean, it's really cool. Because you're like, what is it? Well, it's the Hebrew text aligned, but every single difference between Samuel and Chronicles is highlighted in red. So it just tells you exactly what the differences are. And differences are important. Okay, it doesn't mean that one's more inspired than the other, or more important than the other, or more right than the other. All these differences are quite small. They're very minute, but they make a big difference. And so I need a volunteer, the Chronicle volunteer, you're going to be in First Chronicles 17. <coughs> Have a volunteer. You need a Bible <laughs> that, and a voice. That is, that, is, that is the requirement. Do I have a volunteer? Yes, you are the Chronicle volunteer. You must have your Bible open to First Chronicles 17. First Chronicles 17. All right? And I'll tell you what to read at some point in time. But you have to compare and contrast because by comparing and contrasting, you can bring forth these very small details that make a whole world of difference. And you'll see it. You'll see it. You'll just be like, oh, I get it. And it won't take very long. It'll be actually, actually technically, um, you could already see it immediately in verse 1 of 2 Samuel 7. Someone read it out loud. Yeah, great. So easy, right? Now read it in First Chronicles 17, please. And when it came about when David dwelled in his house, that David said to Nathan the prophet, Behold, I am dwelling in a house of cedar. Ah, stop right there. What's missing? Uh, not just, not just the cedar thing. Rest on every side. 
And you're like, oh, that wasn't in, that wasn't in Chronicles. Yeah, but it was in where? Second Samuel 7. And you're like, what's the big deal about that? Everything. Second Samuel 7, verse 1. The setting. What is this all about? What is this Davidic covenant supposed to do? All right? Well, I'll help facilitate it a little bit. Do you, just like a, you know, I use the analogy of a diamond in its setting, here's another good analogy for you. When a funeral happens in a movie, what is it always doing? Raining. Have you ever noticed that? It's like, it's usually not a sunny day. It's usually overcast and dark. And, and then you're just like, oh, so happy, right? And, and, and it's not mistaken. By the way, uh, notice how the resurrection, do you notice that the time of day and the lighting is given in the resurrection? Why? Because just as light breaks through the darkness, so the resurrection breaks through death. It's, it's, it's trying to, the authors of the Gospels are trying to capture new hope, and there's more that I could do to elaborate on that and prove it definitively, but go, go back and look. It's not like they're like, oh, it's really bright outside, you know, well, why not? I mean, it was, so we're gonna, you know, just put it down. They don't do that. They're not, they're not going to waste words. Davidic covenant. Oh, yes, it's about when the king lived in his house, that's true. When the king lived in his house, uh, but you guys missed something already. Kyle, please read verse seventeen one again. Okay, stop right there. David versus king. See, I have I cheated. I have it in red. But you don't. <laughs> so it's harder for you to find it. I'm glad some Hebrew nerd made this. It's so good. So the thing is... <laughs> oh, true story about this. You know this thing? I looked it up for years. I think since 2004 all the way to 2008. I looked it up every day. Because I was so desperate to get this. Average price, 120 bucks. You're like, for this thing? Like, there's not even, there's like barely 120 pages. You know, it's like a dollar a page. You know, you're like, oh. And, and that, that didn't even include shipping. I had to get it shipped from Israel. It was like, oh, oh, this is terrible. So um, I finally find somebody who's willing to give it to me because he's retiring, Randy Cook, a professor at Ibex. And the day he gives it to me, I run home to my wife. I say, I found the treasure. You know, it's like, this is so exciting. I just saved us $120. And that very day, a publisher bought the rights to this book and was having its opening sale of $20. <laughs> I was like, oh. <laughs> and Dr. Boyce said, well, it's still free, so don't feel too bad about it. I'm like, yeah, that's not the point. The point is, this is this but this is worth every penny. If I had to pay $120, I would have bit the bullet and done it, but I'm glad I got it for free. But you can get it for $20 now, eyes and bronze. Unless they took away the sale, then it might go up to 63. But uh, it's still worth it. David versus King. What is, what is Chronicles emphasizing? David as a person. What is Samuel emphasizing? The Davidic covenant is David as a king. And now the king is situated. 
as opposed to God's blessing upon an individual named David and situating him as a king. Now it's God's putting a king, whose name is David, in position of power and stability. Do you see the difference of emphasis? Okay. The Davidic covenant is all about, in the mind of the, per, of the author of 2 Samuel, about the king and where he's going. And on top of that, just so that if you didn't get the picture and if you didn't get the point, the Lord grants him rest on every side. King versus who? Lowercase king versus the capital K-I-N-G. And in fact, in Hebrew, the word order runs like this. Okay, I could do this. Dwells king or king in house. Yahweh rest from all enemies. I spelled it wrong. doesn't matter. This is irrelevant. What do we have? A chiasm. And king and Yahweh are paired off. But what's the problem? The issue is the house. Does that make sense to everybody? And you know, you guys, you guys already read this story a bazillion times, maybe. At least once. So, you know, God, David wants to build Yahweh a what? A house, because he dwells in a house. The author is already telling you, here's the problem. The problem is about a house. The problem is about the future dynasty of Israel, the future royal dynasty of Judah. What's its destiny? That's the question. What's going to happen to the house? That's the question. <laughs> you see, the setting is trying to give you a very focused look. The issue now is not temple, house, house, you know, David's palace or whatever. The issue is dynasty. And where is this going? Why has God gotten David so far up to this point? Where, what's the next step? Where is the trajectory headed? The Davidic covenant is supposed to answer those kind of questions. But um, we haven't finished yet because God has given him the king, capital K-I-N-G, which is an important correlation to make because that's the correlation made in chapter 6 as well as every chapter up to chapter 6. <coughs> given him what? Rest on every side. Two points to this. Two points to this. Actually, three. Three points. First, anyone know uh, the passage that rest from all your enemies on every side is from? Anyone just... Oh, yeah, I read that in my devotions this morning. Guess what book it comes from? Yeah, that's always a safe bet. Everything comes from Deuteronomy or Genesis. So, <laughs> you know, after post-Isaiah, then it comes from Isaiah, Deuteronomy, or, or uh, Genesis. But, yeah, it's from Deuteronomy 12. Deuteronomy 12, verse 10. Deuteronomy 12, verse 10. Actually, I need a Deuteronomy reader now. Anyone willing to read it? Yes, read Deuteronomy 12, verse 10 and following. I'll just stop you wherever I'd like to stop you. Stop, stop right there. Everyone hear the phrase? You see the connection. Gives you rest on every side. So what, what are you supposed to do when God does that kind of stuff? Continue. Then there will be the place where the Lord will dwell in the midst of 
fire. There you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the heave offerings of your hands, and all your choice offerings, which you vow to the Lord. Stop right there. What happens when God gives you rest on every side? You're supposed to bring everything to one place that God, what? Chooses. Do you understand what David's thinking now? What's he thinking? God's given us rest on every side, so now what am I supposed to do? There's a place that he chose, yes? What place would that be? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. It's so clear, it's so obvious that every liberal wants to say Deuteronomy 12 was written like in 500 you know, B.C., way after, because it just cannot be that God would know so far at a time that he would choose a place. And you're like, well, of course, he, of course he could. He's God. Well, they're not thinking that way, okay? They're thinking an Israelite. Couldn't make it this up. Yes? I was actually thinking earlier when we talked about David bringing the um, ark into Jerusalem. How is it that David why, why there? I, I guess we talked about why, like, why we brought it there, but how did he know that that was a place that God was choosing? Yeah, I think it's because God had already designated that place from the very beginning. Uh, through, like, Abraham, Abraham interaction with Melchizedek, um, <coughs> Abraham's sacrifice, all these pivotal moments, and even what we might call moments of mystery within the book of Genesis are all indicating Jerusalem. There's something special about this city. Jerusalem, there's something really important here. And then as time goes on further, things accumulate onto that during the conquest period and such, and David says, well, this is the place. So it's never like directly said to like No, it doesn't have to be. Yeah. If it, it, you know, here's a great analogy, right? Does a guy usually come up to a girl and just say, I choose you, I like you, like straight up, girls are like, sometimes I wish he would do that. Yeah, I know, but that's a different discussion for a different <laughs> class with a different professor. So the, uh, I don't get involved in those kind of things. So the, I just say, be biblical, you know, and, and, I, and then I say, go home. You know, the, the uh, no, I'm just joking. The, uh, what does he do? He does X, Y, and Z, right? Gives you a gift, you know, uh, gives you an encouraging note, buys you a diamond, you know, or something like that, you know, or whatever. That, that might indicate some things to you, yes? God does not have to say, I choose. If he does enough good things around this city, you get, the, you get the point, right? You get the signal. That's what's going on here. So the first thing, the first thing is that Deuteronomy 12.10 is in the background of this passage. Deuteronomy 12, 10 and following is in the background of this passage. Something is connecting this back to that. <coughs> More on that in a second. Second, and this is a transitional point, rest is a very important motif in the Old Testament. The word for rest is the word nuach, which sounds like the word or the name Noah. Because Noah's name means rest. May the Lord grant us rest from our toils. That's what Noah's daddy prayed over Noah. That's why his name is Noah. Ironically, God grants the request by sending the flood. It's like, sure, here you have some rest as everyone dies, you know. Uh, but it's good. It's good. It works. It, and it does provide rest. The Davidic kingdom. The Davidic kingdom is established and stands for rest and peace. It stands for rest and peace. That's 
the collation of the setting. Remember how I said it? The sun is shining when the resurrection happens and it's always raining when there's a funeral. Well, when the Davidic covenant is in force, really in force, what does it provide? Rest. Which, by the way, should already tie in your mind if rest in the OT, particularly in Genesis, with Noah was a rest from the toils against the earth because the earth was what? Cursed. What is the idea that this Davidic covenant is aiming for? It is aiming to solve the world problem of sin which causes unrest, which causes a lack of peace. Does that make sense? Does it, is it solved right here? No, it's not totally solved. Right? It's not like everyone has world peace at this moment or something like that. It's not like the Davidic king is already even on the throne because no promises have been made. But you understand the setting. It's going in that direction. This covenant is meant to solve everything starting from Genesis onward. That's what this covenant is meant to do. And you're like, oh, Abner, are you sure about that? Yeah, pretty sure. Why? Because I have an answer key. Really? Yeah, that's point three. Answer key. Yes? So does Jesus fulfill that portion by you know, being the Savior who takes away our sin? Yes, and more. Wait, wait, what? Initially, yeah, that's, that's where we're going. And that's going to have more effects than just us personally in our conscience. Because he does that, he has the right to judge the world and to therefore kill sinners who do not repent and also establish a new world or a renewed world. Maybe that's a better way to put it. <coughs> in his kingdom. He bought all that. He bought all the mechanisms for that. But here's the answer key, point three, and this will tie into your question. Hebrews 4, strive to enter into the rest. And you're like, whoa, where did this rest thing come from? Because Joshua never provided rest. You know Joshua? That's like the guy in the conquest. He never provided rest. Why not? Because he didn't conquer what? Everything. Right? He didn't conquer everything. But we look forward to the one who can provide us rest. Well, how do we know it's Jesus? Because who provides the next stage of rest? David. Does that make sense? And you just keep going down that line. And this is what's going on. Jesus provides rest. Jesus provides. Jesus, the Davidic covenant is aiming for one goal, which is the nature of rest. And a lot of people take Hebrews 4 to mean just a kind of a spiritual rest that Jesus provides. That's one aspect. That's one component. But it doesn't really make a lot of sense for the author of Hebrews to be telling his audience, strive to enter into the rest. If Jesus already provides you peace, and it's only just talking about your heart and your soul, well, a lot of his audience could already be in the rest. Does that make sense to everybody? And on top of that, Hebrews 2 already sets up for this thing of, and the angels are the ministers of the one who inherit the world to come. So what's the rest? The rest is what Jesus bought because he's the king to establish a kingdom that actually has rest on all sides. Better than David's, to be sure. Does that make sense to everybody? But this, ori- this original collation here of rest, Davidic covenant, shows you where this is going. This is not just something about David and him having a nice house and God building a house and God building him a dynasty. No, this dynasty is meant, is geared toward 
providing rest for the world. It's aiming toward that direction. It's not there yet. It's the setting. Does this make sense to everybody? It's the situation. Um, let me put it this way. The Davidic covenant, in a sense, encapsulates a moment. Okay? Uh, remember this moment. What's the moment? The moment is when the Isra- Israel's reigning, they've conquered their enemies, they have cleansed the land of idols, they have <coughs> gotten rest on every single side. Does this make sense to everybody? And the Davidic covenant is saying, remember this moment. I'm going to codify this moment. That's what you're looking forward to. That's what, your king, that's what a king is supposed to do. Does that make sense to everybody? Remember the moment. Seize this moment right now. That's what the setting is trying to establish. What moment is being seized? Does this make sense to everybody? Okay, good. Um, Then the king, you know, says something to to Nathan the prophet. And uh, once again, and I'll just give it away for you, Chronicles repeats David. So it's very consistent. It's not just this random switching of terms. Chronicles says David asks. But here we have our buddy, the king asking. This is the king asking. This is all about the king. And he's asking Nathan the prophet. And is this good or is this bad? (coughs) It's good. I agree. Why is it good? Because what's, what's David's intention? What a, what a, what a. Yeah, that's true. But what's he doing here? What did he not do last time? Ask the Lord. Remember that? He didn't ask the Lord. This time, he's going to. Right? This time, he's going to. Except he's asking through Nathan the prophet. Question? I was ask why, why in previous times do we see him not ask the uh, prophet in this time he does? Yeah, it's a great question. Think two reasons here. First, he could have at well okay like introduction like pre-point between the before the first two points I'm going to make um, David could have always asked for a prophet and we just didn't know does that make sense but here's the here's where the next two stages go uh, actually there's a lot of things happening but I'll just list two literally speaking for the book literarily speaking it introduces Nathan as a prophet, right? Well, he's going to come into the picture really big time. So we need to see him as an official court figure. That's the first thing. That's really kind of not the big deal. But the second big deal is this. Um, How to put it best. It shows you that once the king is situated, right, Once the king is situated as a king, he has lost, or not lost, but it's reinforced that he doesn't have necessarily direct connection back to God. He always has to go through who? A prophet, right? He has to ask the prophet what's going on. The prophet is the one who has direct connection to God. And so what, it's kind of strange, but it'll make sense to you. Prophet, priest, and king is the traditional, and it's correct, kind of 
threefold um, official national offices that relate to who God is. Does that make sense? Uh, prophet, God tells him what to say to the people. Priest brings the people before God and king enforces the whole thing. Does that make sense to everybody? But what you start to see here, even within the Davidic covenant, and there's this weird tension that starts to arise and the setting already gives it to you, is that the offices must be split. They must never be united, at least with a human king. Does that make sense to everybody? With a human king, these three offices cannot be united. The king cannot be a prophet who cannot be a priest. The priest cannot be a king, and he's definitely not a prophet, and a prophet cannot be a priest or a king. Does that make sense to everybody? The offices must be split. And then you go to the Lord of the Ring motif of one ring to rule them all. And that's in Ezekiel 21. But there will, the kingdom for David will end. That's what Ezekiel 21 says. David's kingdom will end with the exile until he comes, which is a play, by the way, on Shiloh, because the word until he comes is ad Shiloh, bo, until he comes. Well, when, what is, until he comes what? To whom it all belongs. What? The roles of prophet, priest, and king, until the guy who can rule them all comes. That's the king you're looking for. <clears throat> so, once again, setting, right? You're asking, why, why does Nathan pop up now? Because that also shows you some parts of the nature of the Davidic covenant. Namely, it's the splitting of the offices. Does that make sense? It's the splitting of the offices. David is a law keeper and a law bringer. He's not a new revelation bringer, per se. He gets close at times, and he, he emerges into it at times, but he's never there officially. Does that make sense? Cross-reference Psalms. I mean, does he write a lot of things like this and kind of project things? Yeah. But it's actually not a projection of new things, I would argue, but actually a projection of <coughs> things found in the Davidic covenant. He becomes a great expositor, a great legal analyst of what the Psalms, oh, excuse me, what the Davidic covenant is about. He comes close to looking like a prophet. He comes close to looking like a priest, but he's never there. Does that make sense to everybody? Until the one who rules them all. Speak to me. Yeah, they are prophetic. But it would be like you saying, hey, I got a prophecy for you. And you're like, okay, God's coming back on a white horse. All right, did you make that up? No, I got it from Revelation 19. Well, does that make you a prophet? No. That makes you a proclaimer of a prophecy. Does that make sense to everybody? When you get into 2 Samuel 7, and if you really understand how this setting's all setting up for everything, you're going to know where this heads. And David does know better than you do. Why? Because he's in this. He's, he's having this firsthand. Um, I was going to write a paper once that said, it takes one to know one. You know, obviously we use that in a pejorative sense, but David could be used in a positive sense. You see, we're, we are distant from this text because we're not David. You're not David. Don't be like him. I mean, in a sense. Uh, you're just not David. You're just, you're, just not, you're just not. So, But he is David. And he is a king. And he knows what this feels like. And he knows the experience. So he takes one to know one. He understands the Davidic covenant probably better than any of us here. 
because it directly affects him. He's probably thought through these promises a whole bunch. Why? Because knowing selfish human nature, this is the Davidic covenant, it's about me. You know, starts reading it, and he's happy. And, and then God says, here's a bunch of trials, and he goes, oh, man. But then he says, but actually I should have anticipated that because that was predicted. So I know the solution. Does that make sense to everybody? Yeah. So uh, then you could also take that passage and I guess preach with it that uh, God punishes those whom uh, he loves, meaning he punished David doing the ark, not so much to punish him for the ark's sake, but so that, that way whenever he did establish his kingdom, he could remember that and say, okay, well, God punished me for not having discretion first and now seeks advice, counsel to... Precisely. Precisely. Lesson learned. Yes, you got it. That's exactly, well, that's one of the exactly ways you should preach this passage. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's right. You got it. Good. <clears throat> By the way, MacArthur preached this passage once, and he preached on David's presumption. Uh, it was at Talbot. It was one of MacArthur's first sermons ever. And, you know, what's this passage about? I've already said it a bazillion times. It's about the Davidic covenant. And he, pres- he preached on how we can presume on, on God. You know, we can jump the gun on God. And, and so the professor, whose name was Charles Feinberg, wrote him a letter. Actually, just wrote him a note on his sermon sheet. And it said this. You missed the entire point of the passage. He's like, that was terrible. And that was all you wrote. And <laughs> you know, that MacArthur describes that as his crushing moment. He was crushed. Because uh, Feinberg was a funny guy. Uh, well, I don't know if he was funny, but he was certainly entertaining. So um, this passage is about the Davidic covenant. But are those things there? Yeah, they're part of it. But don't miss the big picture. This is all moving forward to defining and tweaking and collating um, the, the, where the Davidic covenant is headed. Okay. Here's what the king says to Nathan the prophet. It is good that he consults Nathan the prophet. He did learn his lesson. He wants to acknowledge God as K-I-N-G, but capitalized. And so he says, I I live in a (coughs) house of cedar. And you can't see this, but in the Hebrew, (coughs) there's ways to describe, or there's ways to spell things with a longer spelling, and there's ways to spell things with a contraction. We're familiar with this, right? If you spell something out full or without the contraction, it's emphasizing, you know, the person or the object of that action. For example, <clears throat> a little kid telling his mom that he didn't get a cookie. I did not get a cookie. Right? What is he emphasizing? Just spelling it all out to show the gr- gross injustice of his mother. And then, mom asks, well, did I give your little brother a cookie either? He didn't get one. He's not going to say, he did not get one either. He's not going to do that. Why not? Because he's trying to emphasize himself. Does that make sense? So he's not going to put himself on par with his brother because that would make his mom entirely just and which would destroy his argument for getting a cookie. Even little kids understand this. How you use contractions rhetorically and you don't. See, you have to put nerd terms on it. You know, rhetorical use of contractions and all this kind of stuff. But really, in the discourse linguistics of it all, it, it just, it's just obvious. David puts himself as 
the full spelling. I am dwelling in a house, but God dwells in a tent. This is way too much about who? Me. This is way too much about me. And again, this emphasizes that David is the right person. He's starting to realize there's a massive discrepancy between lowercase k-i-n-g and uppercase k-i-n-g. Does that make sense to everybody? There's a massive discrepancy. I dwell, God dwells. I'm in a house of cedar, but God's in a tent with curtains. Uh, A tent with curtains is a direct allusion back to the tabernacle because the word curtains is used in reference to the tabernacle as well. Exodus 26. I haven't treated God right. I have not treated God right. And David understands that if you don't treat God as the capital K-I-N-G, you're no good. So Nathan agrees with him and says... Go, do all that is in your mind, for the Lord is with you. We already know that the Lord is with David. The author has already told us that over and over and over again. But did Nathan consult the Lord? Obviously, he doesn't, right? Because God has to correct him. So whose fault is it this time? David's or Nathan's? Nathan's. It's Nathan's fault. David asked Nathan, assuming that Nathan would tell him what God said. David was trying to have the posture of a capital K-I-N-G. Nathan replies presumptuously about what he should do, because it just seems logical. I mean, after all, has Nathan said anything false? Is God not with David? No, God is with David. And was David doing something admirable? Yeah, this attitude looks good. Does that make sense to everybody? But there is a mistake. There's a mistake in the assessment, right? The assessment of the agenda. Assessment of the agenda and maybe even of ability. And I'll try to show you what I mean by that. The assessment of agenda or ability. David wants to build God because he thinks in his mind, perhaps, well, Deuteronomy 12 says, after God gives me rest, I'm supposed, I mean, we're supposed to have a centralized location for worship to God. And not only that, I'm not treating God as king anyway, so let's just make this happen, right? Maybe that's the way redemptive history is supposed to turn. Does this make sense to everybody? Well, God issues an immediate corrective, verse 4, an immediate corrective to the thing. Because on the same night, Right? Not a little bit later, same night. Nathan goes home, he goes to bed that night. Verse 4. Okay, verse 4. Yeah? Both. Both. And that's why God tells Nathan to tell David, because they're both wrong. They're wrong together. Let's just put it that way. They're both mistaken. But Nathan more than David, because Nathan was supposed to ask God. David asked Nathan to ask God. In the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Anyone do SPP 6? Raise your hands. Don't be shy. It's okay. Any, any, Because that's on the word of the Lord, right? So speak to me. Any, any, anything you got? 
Okay, that is true. Uh, definitely when the word of the Lord comes, it's not just like, and there were flashes of lightning and that was it. Right? It's information that's being disseminated. Um, <clears throat> and that information is revelation. It's supposed to be helpful. Yeah. Anything else? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It comes to a lot of prophets. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Comes to a lot of guys. Good, good observation. Yeah, instruction, and it comes to a lot of guys. What question should you be fundamentally asking? Ah, uh, that that's true. That's a good question. But I'm thinking of something even more fundamental than that. What is it? Have you ever wondered that? Like, what is the word of the Lord? Wouldn't, wouldn't that be a good question to ask yourself? Like, so, was it like, where the Lord came? Oh, that is helpful. You know, already pre-written. You know, that, that is good. Like, and how, how and, okay, you're like, well, no, it's not a scroll that follows it's the word. Okay, so one word from the Lord just comes to you. So the word walked? Do you see, do you see the problem already? How can, how can a word come to you? Okay, it could be like an inner prompting. That could be it, but that doesn't come... Here, grammar lesson. Yeah? I never knew about prepositions and what they really did until I learned Greek and Hebrew. Isn't that funny? I use them all the time, but... If the word of the Lord comes to you or appears to you and you're thinking, oh, that's something in my conscience, well, what would that be? The word come, word of the Lord coming in you, right? In you. This is in. This is to. It implies motion. Yes? And, and, with, the, and the, with the preposition L as opposed to the preposition la, which can denote point, L implies uh, motion towards. It comes towards you. Well, that doesn't mean it just appears right here to you. It's coming toward you. Does that make sense? It implies movement. Uh, do you see a problem? So what is this word of the Lord business? Could be a person. Could be a person. Yeah. And you cheated because you already had me for this lecture. That's okay. Yeah. That's a good research topic, by the way. Um, <clears throat> word of the Lord. Oh, yeah, that's a good research topic for everyone, by the way, as well as the Davidic Covenant, if you're wondering what to write a wiki article on. Word of the Lord. Person, maybe, but let's flesh this out a little bit and walk through this. And then a ask the question, the second question, which Kyle asks, which is, so why does he appear to David? Or why does he appear to Nathan? Yes. Could be audible speech, but... So that the word, the information, is coming to the individual. Could be like that. But then the words still have to have a what? Source. And you would also expect, it wouldn't be the word of the Lord, it would be the plural. Right? Words. Oh yeah, it could it could refer to 
kind of like a, a dream state, I guess, is what you're, what you're getting at, right? Like in Matthew 1, is that what you're... Right. So let's see. Yeah, Matthew 2. Well, in Matthew 2.13, it says that the, behold, an angel of the Lord appears uh, in a dream to Joseph. Okay? So a little different, yeah. That's what I thought. Actually, word of the Lord is interesting because it predominantly appears in Acts. Predominantly appears in Acts. <coughs> and one time in like First uh, Thessalonians 3. But um, let's, let's back up and go through this. Okay, back up and go through this. First time word of the Lord, or word and Lord, kind of appear in a similar context as when. Guess. Don't say Deuteronomy, it's the other book. Genesis, that's good. <laughs> see, you guys already, you, see, sometimes um, being smart with Bible is just, a, is just a game of guessing. It really is. Uh, you know, people say, how do you know the Bible so well? I don't. I just, I'm just a good guesser. Um, you know, because if it doesn't appear here, it must appear here. And then you kind of remember which chapters things happen, you know, and, and you just guess your way around. It's like what I tell people with parsing Greek and Hebrew. It's just good guessing. Um, I mean, until you really know what you're doing, you're just, we're just helping you guess really well. Uh, so, no, it's not a waste of time. It's good. But you, you first have to guess before you know, okay? So Genesis 1 and following. Then he said what? Let there be light, and there was light. The collocation of word, speech, and God's power are together. That God gives information, and it immediately happens and advances God's plan. God says, it happens. This collocation of word and God's speaking is carried out in other passages, and I'll cite one, Psalm 33, Psalm 33, and 143 for that matter, <clears throat> God says, or by the word of the Lord, the heavens are created, okay, or by the word of the Lord, the snow falls, God says it, it happens, God gives information, and creation instantaneously reacts to what he says, and it happens in complete conformity to his decree. This is all true. This is all true. But what happens is, okay, the word then becomes kind of an extension of both information and God's power. Do you see that? It, the word becomes an extension of God's power and his information uh, because he creates the heavens by a word. Does that make sense to everybody? Well, he, his word somehow causes or affects these things to occur. So it's an extension of his power. It acts on his behalf, so to speak. Does this make sense to everybody? Okay. Then you have this explosion of usages of word of the Lord all over the place. And it goes to people, you know, like 1 Kings 13. And, you know, you have here um, 2 Samuel 7. And you have, um, like, Jonah and Obadiah, and all, all these other places <clears throat> where word of the Lord happens. Okay, good. 
Now the Word is an extension of God's power. Now the Word does things. Now the Word acts like a person because He even comes to people and communicates things with power and authority. Does this start to make sense to everybody? So is it any surprise? Is it any surprise? Dot, dot, dot. In the beginning was the Word. And who's that talking about? Jesus. Of course. It's like, well, no, no kidding. I mean, you should, have, you should have saw that coming a mile away, an Old Testament away. You know, it's just, uh, if God says it, it happens. And the Word is this mediating force, so to speak, an extension of who God is, kind of a person, because He causes dynamically things to occur. And God plans all things according to His Word, going out and doing all these kinds of things. And how can a Word go out anyway and do things unless it's not personified at all. And then all these other passages, the word appears to people and all these kinds of things. How does that work unless the word is a person? And how can the word of the Lord communicate and talk to people, not just like a message, but dialogue? Yeah. The pre Right. Precisely. That's what it is. Or shall we better say, that's who he is. Right? The word of the Lord. And John is not crazy then for saying in the beginning was the Word. Where did he get that from? He understood the OT. Does that make sense to everybody? This is the pre-incarnate Christ. But let's go one step further. Word of the Lord, usage in Acts. Then the Word of the Lord spread. Is that just talking about God's message in general? No. What's Acts trying to trace? The growth of specifically what institution? The, the church. And so it's, yeah, it's exactly that. It's the gospel that's spreading. And the gospel about who? Jesus. And so word of the Lord goes back to what it always meant. Jesus. The word of the Lord is a code word for the gospel because the gospel is about Jesus and the word of the Lord is Jesus. And do you start to see a connection? Here you have the written word connected to the Word incarnate, connected to the Gospel, which is the fulfillment of both words. So, when Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, preach the what? Word, everyone says, oh, that's preaching Jesus, which is true. But why is preaching the Word as opposed to preaching the Graface, which is the Scriptures, or preaching the Holy Oracles, or preaching anything of that nature? Why does he use Word? Well, it is because it's talking about the gospel. But why does the gospel have power? Because the gospel cannot be separated from who? The word. You can't separate the word from the word. They are inseparable because they're the same thing. The gospel is the extension of God's power just like God. The, the word is the extension of God. Does that make sense to everybody? Yeah. I'm not sure if Jesus in pre-incarnate form appeared to them or just communicated with them. Right. Well, we understand from the corpus here of what's going on that God distinguishes himself from his word. God the Father does. So the word must be somebody not God the Father. So God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, possibility, probably God the Son. Uh and there's some more proof that we could go for that. But I think that because of the personification language used around the word of the Lord, appearing to people and everything of this nature, 
you're dealing with pre-incarnate person. Now, did he have a physical human body or something like that? I don't know. But the person appeared. Yes, sir. Is the same word uh, like used in First Samuel three, like verse seven, or like you know, where Samuel's being called? So just like when I'm reading it, it sounds like really tangible. So I was wondering if you thought it was like pre-incarnate. First Samuel three seven, you said. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's the word of the Lord. And notice the word of the Lord is commun. It's see. Here's the problem. If you just think it's a message. Then you have a problem because they dialogue. Right, Samuel, Samuel, here I am. Well, our answering machine will not interact like that. You know what I mean? It's just not going to work. person does. So they're saying that it had not yet been revealed to Samuel, so it's the word. Right. And this is the pre-incarnate Christ. By the way, it's not just Abner that thinks so, or more importantly, John and Paul and Jesus that thinks so. <laughs> that would be very important. And that's actually the most important, so this secondary evidence doesn't really help too much, but uh, Aramaic Targums, which were an ancient translation of the Old Testament, believed that the word of the Lord was messianic. Okay, translated it that way. Yes, sir? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I was a- <clears throat> answering the other person's question, I don't know what form, right? But I know who. Yeah, I just don't know what form. Yeah. And this is a massive attestation for the deity of Christ, right? I mean, obviously, because they thought they were talking to who? God. But God says, "I'm distinct from my word." So. How do you have that? Well, you have another person, yes? Uh, And going back to Kyle's question, why is it so important that the word of the Lord appears to Nathan to discuss what Nathan ought to say for the Davidic covenant? Put the dots together. See, all of that was, had actually a purpose. It wasn't just a fruitless discussion <coughs> to wow you. There's a point. This is all moving somewhere. Why does he appear? Could, 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 it, could it said Yahweh appeared to him in a dream that night? Or Yahweh sent an angel in a dream? Could God have done any of those things? Yes, of course he could. Why word of the Lord? Why? Yeah. Who better to send to explain the Davidic covenant other than the one who's going to what? Fulfill it. This is my covenant. I am the capital K-I-N-G and this covenant is about me. And I'm going to tell you what it's going towards because ultimately I will be the one who embodies the covenant that I'm telling you. Yes? I believe that that question Zechariah 2, Zechariah 3. I mean, obviously, you got the description here of probably that same being that pre incarnate Christ. And he's got that stick snatched from the burning fire. What do you do with the stick snatched from the burning fire? Like, you kick it back in the fire. It's useless. But he says, no. And Satan's sitting there. He's like saying, hey, the adversary's saying, hey, you know what you got in your hand? You, you, 
you know? I mean, it's burning stick, and it's pathetic. And Christ's like, yeah, I know. Uh, I, I think that was a good description if you read those two chapters of what, what exactly might have been in this vision if it's the same kind of uh, idea. Oh, no, I think it's the same person. You're right about that. But does it have to be the same form? Maybe, maybe not. You know, I, wanna, I don't want to be too dogmatic about it because the text doesn't say for the, word, the way the word of the Lord interacts as opposed to, say, the angel of the Lord or something on, on those lines. Uh, it could be. Could very well be, but I don't know. You know, it seems to be, but I can't be sure. Because, well, one, you're in a little different circumstance, but two, because the collation is not as clear, even if they are the same person. You know, God can appear in various forms, so to speak, and manifest Himself in different ways. So the Word could also do the same, and we have to be careful. Because he does manifest himself like that. For example, Daniel 7, and as well as Daniel 12, it matches Zechariah, to be sure. And we say, okay, good. But, does it always have to be that way? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe not. Yeah. But it's a good observation to bring out, to be sure. Further questions? Do you understand why it's so significant now that the word of the Lord comes to Nathan? The pre-incarnate Christ the true king is saying, this is a covenant that I make. It's actually about me. But I'm making it to you. This is one king to another king. This is your Lord speaking to you, a Lord. Does that make sense to everyone? The Lord said to my Lord? Yeah, okay, anyway. Um, and this is what the Lord says. This word. Go and say to my servant David. Now that's, oh yeah, uh-huh. Directly. It's because Nathan made the mistake. Nathan didn't consult the Lord. David consulted Nathan with the hope of consulting the Lord. And now we have the splitting of the, the, splitting of the offices as well as God holding the right person culpable. Yeah which will play important later on for a variety of reasons anyway, like getting Solomon on the throne, for example. But, go and say to my servant David, wow, we're not going to make it. Okay, hurry. Uh, my servant David, servant, my servant David is a very important phrase. Not everyone, you know, you're like, oh, I want to be God's servant, I want to be God's servant. Yeah, that's good, but you can't. Um, nice try. Uh, my servant are important people, not like you and me. We're not as important, all right? It's, by the way, though, we are called servants, right? We're all called slaves, douloi, doulos, in the New Testament. That's a tremendous privilege, okay? Don't, don't just think, oh, I'm a slave. That's about hard work and stuff. Yeah, that's true. Slavery, hard work, all those motifs are true. But just keep in mind, my servant... Abraham, Genesis 26. My servant Moses, Numbers chapter 12. My servant Caleb, Numbers 14. My servant Job, Job chapter 1. My servant Israel, Ezekiel 28. My servant, not named, but Jesus, Isaiah 44 and 49. Okay, It's not like anyone can be my servant, right? It's not just any kind of niche. The term, the title, my servant, in, implies... Yes, it implies servitude to Yahweh. It implies that they are subjects, 
but also implies dignity and the ability to advance redemptive history to a new level. Right? Abraham, Moses, Jesus, big players. Yes? Abner, not big player. Yeah. So my servant Abner doesn't exist. I am a servant of the Lord, just like everyone's a servant of the Lord, but not in the same sense. Does this make sense to everybody? And do you also understand when Paul says he's a servant of the Lord? Yes! That implies his slavery and his servitude, but also applies what? I'm in line with the rest of the prophets. Don't miss that either. Both of them are important. These are big people who who God has providentially and mightily chosen to advance redemptive history. David is now that person. David is now like a new Moses. David is now like a new Joshua, Caleb, Job, who is going to take advance to he's going to take redemptive doxological history to a new level. This is all what's going on. This is who David is. Because he administers the Davidic covenant. Are you are you yourself going to build a house for me to dwell in? That's God's question to David. Are you, it's a question, are you the one who's going to build me a house? Chronicle reader. Yeah, that's you. Verse 4, please. What's the difference? What is it? It's a statement. Second Samuel is a question. <coughs> is a question. First Chronicles 17 is a what? Statement. This tells you a lot. Because when, when God rejects David's request to build him a house, what should you ask? What, what question should you ask? Why, well, why not? We all thought it was a good idea. I mean, he's trying to acknowledge you as the capital KNG. He learned his lesson. He consulted Nathan. Nathan messed up. But hey, at least David was trying to do the right thing. So why did you reject his request? Doesn't that make sense to everybody? Well, here's the funny problem. God gives two slightly different answers. He gives a question in one passage, and he gives a statement in another. The statement, 1 Chronicles 17, is easier for us to grasp. You are not the one. Implying what? David, you're disqualified from the task. You're disqualified from the task. A statement that rejects you outright shows that you inherently are not worthy of this task. Does that make sense to everybody? It's a statement. You're outright rejected. And it, the emphasis is clear. You know, um, if a guy asks a girl out on a date and she says, not you, that tells everything. You're disqualified. <laughs> right? That just tells you everything. You need to know. Good question. You know, okay, I guess I'm not the right one. By the way, um, First Chronicles chapter... 28 verse 3. David says, The Lord says to me, You are not the one because you are a man of war and a man who has shed blood. Probably a veiled allusion back to what event? Anyone know? 
What? Bathsheba. You're disqualified. You cannot be the one. Yeah. Uh, yes, there are some parts of it that co- correlate, but we'll get to that actually when we get into the to the covenant proper. Does that make sense? Because that's when he really starts to talk about this house business. This is just all setting. Yeah. Second Samuel asks a question like, "Are you yourself going to build me a house?" What is what is uh, God questioning? David's ability to evaluate the situation, right? If a girl says, no, you're not the one, you understand, I was just rejected, I'm a loser, right? But if she says, are you kidding me? (laughs) What does that mean? You thought you could be the one, right, that would do all this, that that could get my heart. What is she insulting? Not just your ability, but your intelligence, yes? Do you understand the difference between statement and question? Oh, this is good. I prayed a lot about how to illustrate this. So the, and I didn't even think of this analogy just till now. So uh, that was providential. Uh, this is David's ability to evaluate, to assess. David, are you kidding me? I brought you all this way, and you're you're concerned about a house? What? I don't understand you. That is God's question to David. Do you understand the agenda? And here's God's point, and then I have to let you go. God has always been content to live in a tabernacle from day one, from the day that he brought Israel out of Egypt. Does that make sense to everybody? The tabernacle, the house of God, although it will become important, is right now secondary. That's not the agenda. And... There's so much that I could talk about with what the temple imagery stands for. It stands for, and and the way that God is using it here, by the way, if you compare this with the book of Chronicles, and I invite you to do that tonight, you're going to see that God says, look, temple's not big, but it is. That's what the Chronicle is trying to say. Because, okay, here, I'll show you one way to prove that definitively. Um, Okay. Read verse 5. Just go ahead and read verse 5. Uh, wait, wait a minute. Oh, yeah, read verse 5. Go ahead, the whole thing. Ah, tent to tent, one dwelling place to another. Everyone hear that phrase? I've just been putting the tent and after tent and after tent. It's like, God, if you, if you didn't really care about tents, then why do you mention them so much? Does that make sense? But contrast that with 2 Samuel's rendition. I have been moving about in a tent, even a tabernacle. Much shorter, much crisper. Does that make sense to everybody? Chronicles are saying, yeah, God's focus at the particular time with David is not about this tent, but it is about the tent. Because Chronicler is trying to emphasize the relationship between God and his people. Does that make sense? And we, we like to emphasize what the Chronicler emphasizes a lot because we view redemptive history as God's love relationship with his people. Does that make sense to everybody? But God's point is, that is not my agenda right now. Do you see that? My agenda is about this. Did I ever command one of the tribes of Israel? Oh, we could... 
Tribes versus what? What does it say in Chronicles? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In all places where I've walked with all Israel, I've spoken a word with or have I spoken with any of the judges? Ah, judges versus one of the tribes. Which one tribe is in Second Samuel? Which is the focus? The tribe of Judah. It's totally about king. Over there in, the, in Chronicles, it's about God using the judges and trying to go through history and his faithfulness to his people. And so God historically talks about the judges. But here, its focal point is upon the tribes. And what does God say about the tribes? Did I speak even a word with them about what? Why have you not built me a house of cedar? But what have I had? What did I command them to do? Verse 7. What did I command them to do? Shepherd my people Israel. By the way, this is a direct allusion back to 2 Samuel 5 because the construction, my people Israel, is only found in 2 Samuel 5 prior to this time. God is saying what you guys said to David, that God told you to shepherd the people and all that we talked about, what that meant last time, that has been my agenda. My agenda has always been to make and pave the way for the king. Not relationship first, king first. Does that make sense to everybody? This is where it's going. Is, is relationship going to come? Yeah, that's the Chronicles point is. Do you see that? It's parallel. But Samuel's point is, what is this Davidic covenant about? It's about the king. It's not about you as people of God. It's about the Messiah who will fulfill. It's about the royal line and what this line was meant to do for the glory of God. That's the agenda. And everything that comes around this with the servant of David as now the exalted uh, advancer of redemptive history and the rest and all these other motifs that are now colliding to make the setting of the make the one moment that the Davidic covenant encapsulates will now, next time, be described. Have a good day.